Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for our time already today, uh, singing to you, um, just being reminded in the words of our songs of how great you are, uh, of your great love for us, the assurance we have in you, uh, and also this wonderful hope, uh, thank you, um, that Jesus did rise again. Uh, thank you that those who trust in him will rise too. Um, we just uh, pray that we'd come away, f- um, uh, as we hear your word now, you, you would speak to us and that we'd come away greatly encouraged and comforted by uh, the words of truth um, in our passage today. So um, by your spirit, make these uh, words penetrate deep uh, and, uh, and, and do your work through your word today among us. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. The reading today is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 13. And if So verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and who are left are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let me pray for us before we start. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that in a world that is marked by such darkness, you bring us light. Um, In a world that has such sadness in it, you bring us your deep joy in a world... Um, where there are many reasons to be hopeless, you bring to us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus a bright, unshakable, eternal hope. Encourage us this morning with this word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are, um, Steve's mentioned, if you're visiting among us, we're reading through this uh, section of the Bible's ancient letter of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonian Christians. Um, The second half of this letter, we've kind of looked at this, it's something that Paul does in lots of his different letters. Uh, The second half, um, Paul turns to, um, uh, is really all about how this gospel, this good news about Jesus, how it totally transforms the lives of those people who will receive it. Uh, Putting your faith in Jesus means you've been brought into God's eternal family. Uh, uh, It means that instead of being driven by the need to please other people or even the need to please yourself, you're freed to live as you were made to, uh, to live to please God. It shapes everything. Over the last few weeks we've seen that. Um, Paul's taken a snapshot of a few different areas of life and showed how the gospel shapes it and transforms it. It shapes how we live out our sexuality, about knowing God's goodwill for our lives. It shapes how we think about being part of God's family, transforms the relationships that we have with each other in the the church. We looked at that last week. Um, 
All of that was what Paul had already told them. If you remember something of the story of this church, Paul had gone there and he told people about Jesus and he gathered these people together um, who put their faith in him and he, spent, he only had a few weeks with them to kind of drill into them the, the, the core reality, the basics of the Christian life and all of that. All of that that we've looked at over the last few weeks, he'd already talked to them about, but he was writing this to encourage them in it and to tell them to keep going at it, right? He was reminding them of it. Um, this is kind of the Christian life 101. But what he gets to now in these verses seems to have been something he didn't get a chance to talk that much about when he was with them um, before he had to leave. If, if you can read the story in the book of Acts, so he had to kind of get out of there quickly. Um, uh, it's something that he didn't quite have a lot of time to talk about. He, he turns now to, to, not, uh, to uh, talk about how knowing Jesus doesn't just transform all of those aspects of your life. Uh, he talks about how knowing Jesus transforms how you think about death as well. And it's, it's something that for these Christians there was a bit of confusion about. Um, their confusion led them to a serious case of FOMO. Now, various ones of us will know what that means. Have you heard of it? Uh, FOMO stands for fear of missing out. It's this serious kind of psychological phenomenon that plagues heaps of people actually today. People are quite concerned about it, this, this phenomenon of FOMO, fear of missing out. Uh, it's this deep angst that somewhere someone is having more fun than you. <laughs> uh, someone has some kind of secret information that you don't. Um, someone has some kind of special possession that you don't. And you can't be at peace in, in yourself at, at all at any point um, because you, all, you always have this kind of underlying anxiety that you're missing out on something. Um, it's amplified, they reckon, it's totally kind of taken to a new level by social media um, where you're always confronted with the best of other people's lives so it makes you feel like you're missing out even more. Uh, amplified by a hyper-connected world where we can see what's going on. But it's actually, uh, it's actually an, quite an ancient fear. Uh, if you piece it together, it looks like these guys at, in this city called Thessalonica, um, they had their own version of FOMO, fear of missing out. It was a fear of missing out that was brought on by the reality of death. It was a bit different to how we usually experience it. They're, their kind of fear wasn't as self-focused as ours usually is. Um, but it was a fear, what, what their fear was, it was a fear for those people who had died. And, and probably it was also a fear for themselves if they were to die. Um, it's something that's in the background to this passage. Um, these guys knew the fundamental claims of the Christian gospel, this this good news that had come to them, that Jesus died for our sin, he rose again, he was coming back to judge the world and set up his eternal kingdom. Uh, but it seems, like they were, uh, it seems like they were expecting all of that to happen in a really short time frame while they were all still alive. Um, but time kind of went on. Uh, they kept waiting for this return of Jesus and then some of them got sick and some of them died and the question started to get asked well we're waiting for Jesus to come back but what's the deal with these Christian brothers and sisters who've been waiting for this with us who've died are, are they going to miss out 
What about if I get sick and die? Will I miss out? Uh, It seems like this was an area that Paul didn't, like I said, he didn't really focus on this when he was with them, but he writes now to set them straight. So um, it'll come up on the screen. If you have Bibles open, you can see it there too. We'll start at verse 13. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Well, right there is Paul's basic and wonderful point. Um, The gospel of Jesus takes the coldest, harshest fact of human existence. The thing that stands over every person, the reality that there will come a day when my body will break down and I'll take my last breath and my heart will beat its last beat and I'm just not there anymore. It takes that universal tragedy. But instead of seeing a corpse, it sees someone taking a nap. Just taking a nap. Jesus transforms death into sleep. And the thing about sleeping people is they wake up, right? They wake up. But you've got to ask, right, um, is this just a kind of wishful thinking that's going on here? Is this just what you say when you don't know what to say? Uh, Kind of like saying, oh look, uh, he's looking down on me, she's just in the next room, he's just gone fishing, Uh, uh, he's just sleeping. The same kind of thing that we say to each other when we're kind of uncertain, we just don't know what to say. Is it just that kind of wishful thinking that's going on for Paul? Well, at Uh, at least what I want to encourage us to see this morning is that the least we can say is that Paul didn't think about it that way. Um, You notice what it says up there. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about this. In other words, he thinks it's possible to be informed, to have reliable, trustworthy, sure information about what happens after death. We're going to come back to why he thinks that in a moment. But notice also um, the reason as you read on why he wants them to be informed. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. He doesn't say, so that you do not grieve, full stop. You see what he's saying there? Um, You notice that Paul gives a real space for grief in the Christian life. It has been read in the past as if he'd written so that you do not grieve full stop, as if there's something kind of sub-Christian about grief, as if we shouldn't be sad at the death of a loved one and that if we are it kind of means some kind of lack of faith. That's not biblical and it's not what's on view here. The gospel does give us a framework that transforms how we respond to death. But it doesn't mean we don't grieve. It doesn't mean we have a kind of fake triumphalism that refuses to feel sadness, that's happy to celebrate someone's life but never gives space just to mourn their loss, to name the reality that I just miss my nan. I just miss her. I miss her laugh. I wish she was still here. I grieve for her. But she knew Jesus, and so I don't grieve like 
the rest of mankind. I grieve in hope. I grieve so that underneath and through the sadness is the deep comfort of knowing, of having reliable, trustworthy information that in the deepest reality she is just sleeping and one day her Lord will say to her, just remember the story of Jesus and Jairus' daughter? You can read it in Mark chapter 5. Well, one day Jesus will say to my nan, He'll, 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 he'll say, why all this commotion and wailing? She's not dead but asleep. And then he'll take a hand, just like he took the hand of that little girl, and say, Gladys, it's time to wake up. That is the framework for Christian grief. The knowledge that through Jesus the grave is just a bed and death is just sleep. It means, friends, that we can acknowledge our sadness and our grief, but not in despair. We can grieve in hope. And that sets Christian grief far apart from the rest of the world. Far apart from the emptiness of the platitudes and vague comforts. That's a huge claim, right, what Paul says there. So you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. I mean, that is a massive claim he's making, right? And you might be thinking, how can you say that? Isn't that arrogant to claim that? To claim that the alternative to knowing Jesus is to face death without hope. It would be arrogant if it wasn't true. Uh, And where Paul goes next is why he can make this claim. He, he, goes, he goes to the simple, fundamental, defining events of the Christian story, the historic realities of things that really happened, that set Christianity apart from every other view of the world. Verse 14, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. It's so simple to say, isn't it? But this is at the heart of everything. This concrete, historic event. It means that the Christian message isn't fundamentally a set of abstract principles for life or rules for your life to help you to live better. It's not about a philosophy for this life. The Christian message is fundamentally the eyewitness record of a true story. Things that really happened 2,000 years ago at a particular place and that have implications for all people and all places at all times. That's why he doesn't go running after, uh, he doesn't need to go kind of running after sensationalist near death experiences to get some glimpse of, of life after death. You might be aware of this as a whole kind of industry around this, really. People who've claimed to have gone in and out and um, seen amazing things and come back and told people about it and signed publishing deals and. Um, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure what to make of all that, to be honest. But I do know that they pale into insignificance put next to Jesus. Jesus didn't just dip his toe into death. He wasn't just resuscitated after a few minutes being dead. He, he didn't just go in and out of death. He smashed through it. He smashed through it. He broke its power. 
He was resurrected to a new and undying life. And if there's one guy you're going to listen to about death, it's got to be him. Well, and where this, where this, Francis, we keep reading, where this becomes really incredible good news for us is what comes next. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It's just so simple but so profound, right? And this isn't just Paul's idea either. As, you, as we read on, um, he goes on, it's according to the Lord's own word. And that's really good news for these Thessalonian Christians who are struggling with their own fear of missing out, right? They, they, their fear that death might rob them of this great future that Jesus promises. And verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archang- the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. It's this short but mind-blowing reflection, right? It's so rich, um, a really precious part of this letter. And it's full of this rich imagery and language. He's not trying to give a detailed description of what's going to happen, a kind of timeline. He just gives enough to address this particular issue that the Christians were wrestling with. What happens to these Christians who have died before Jesus returns? But the picture he does paint is this dramatic and unmistakable event that brings an end point to all of history. Um, There's heaps that's been made about these verses and maybe you're familiar to different extents of the different ways they've been understood. There are are Christian traditions who have um, kind of been quite intensely focused on trying to piece together all the details about this return of Jesus. Um, uh, it seems to me, though, that, that that can play out, play itself out in kind of in practice a devaluing of the completed work of Jesus on the cross, what Jesus has accomplished for us. It can encourage people's eyes to always be looking around at current events today um, instead of what the New Testament encourages us, which is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Um, I think it's also to force this text into doing something it was never meant to. Um, we're going to see more about this next week. We've got John Warner, who, who spoke um, a few weeks ago, coming back to preach next week uh, for one more time. Uh, but we'll see then that um, Paul writes, there's, there's no advance warning of this. Uh, trying to work out timetables and predictions is just something it's not worth speculating about. Our job is to be ready and prepared at all times. Because when it does happen... It'll be totally unmistakable. Um, if you flip back to verse 16, if that's up on the screen there, it uses this, these images from the Old Testament to paint this striking picture of this moment. 
Just uh, if you're taking notes, you want to look it up. Exodus 13 is this event in the Old Testament where God descended on Mount Sinai and there were these heavenly trumpet blasts so everyone could hear what was going on. It was like this great sign of the coming of God to his people. Um, And that's the kind of imagery that's being used here to describe this indescribable moment in the future. Jesus will come and gather his people. He'll come to judge and renew this world and set up an eternal kingdom of life and peace. And notice how Paul says the dead in Christ will rise first. See what he's saying here? There's no sense in which when that happens, when this moment comes, there's no sense in which those who have died are going to miss out on anything. In fact, they'll be the first ones to the party. Um, They will be the first. And after they've been called, after they've had new life breathed into them by their Lord, then those who are alive will join them to meet the Lord in the air. Um, Again, people have sort of had different ways of reading what's going on there, this idea of meeting the Lord in the air. You might have heard the idea of the rapture. It pictures a time when God will take people away from the earth and one moment you'll be here and the next you won't. It's a really popular series that's been produced around that and a kind of B-grade Hollywood movie uh, called the Left Behind series. Um, it's not a core issue, so it's one of those things that Christians can disagree on and still embrace each other as brothers and sisters. Uh, but I just don't think that's on view here at all, actually. Um, What's in view here is not this secret thing when some will be plucked away quietly and others won't. What's on view is the single, unpredictable, climactic point of history that all everyone's going to know about and that's going to bring an end to this age and usher in God's new age, his new creation. Um, they, will be, they will meet the Lord, we're told. Um, brought together to meet the Lord in the air. And that idea of meeting the Lord is significant as well. Um, The word that gets used there and would have been understood by the Thessalonians this way was a word that was talked about going out to meet someone in order to bring them back in. So it's the same word that gets used if you know the story in Matthew 25 about the young women who go out to meet the bridegroom and they usher him back into the house. Um, The whole image here is not of Christians escaping this world to some disembodied place. The whole image here is of Jesus coming to his world at its climactic end and of his people ready and waiting, ushering him in. Ushering him in uh, to set up his kingdom and take his throne. He uses this really rich, evocative language that's steeped in Old Testament imagery Um, to talk about this moment. Well, whatever you make of that, though, it's really important not to miss the main point of what's going on here. Paul's main point isn't to spark all kind of speculation about this. His main point is to give deep and certain and hope-filled encouragement to Christians facing death. And it means that those who sleep in him, 
like we've seen, then they're not going to miss out in any way. Those who have died in him will miss out in no way. Um, there's more to say here that Paul doesn't talk about, about this moment the, when Jesus returns. There's, he doesn't go into the mechanics of it, you know, what's going to happen to bodies that aren't whole, bodies that have been created, cr- created cremated, uh, bodies that have been lost at sea and eaten by sharks, you know. Uh, it would have been a question that the first Christians would have thought about too. In the Roman Empire, Christians were um, got stories of Christians being burned, their ashes scattered in the sewers and then mocked by people um, in order to kind of take away their hope. Uh, but that just doesn't seem to be an issue that's worth much airtime for Paul here. If, if, if the God who flung the stars into the sky, <laughs> the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, if that God is on your side, then none of those things are an issue for him. He can cope with it, right? So there's no need to worry. People are safe in Christ no matter how they die. So it doesn't go into that. But Paul doesn't also talk much about those who die outside of Christ. And maybe that's a, a kind of really personal and um, even a confronting issue for you. Those who die without faith in Jesus. All that he says is, that that's a situation in which there is no hope. To die outside of Christ is to die outside of the only hope that humanity has in the face of death, in the face of our sin, in the face of our rejection of God and the judgment that follows it. To die without Christ, friends, is to miss out. To miss out in the biggest and most terrible way. And if you know that that's your situation, don't put it off. Jesus invites you to come to him, to trust him, to live with him as your good Lord. And he invites you to face death with a confident, bright, deep hope. But the weight of this beautiful passage I said at the start, the weight of this passage is actually encouragement for Jesus' people. Um, in a way, the, the big question hanging over this whole section of Paul's letter is, will you trust God with your life? Will you trust him? Um, so that, this is, we looked at this a few weeks ago, will you trust him so that you have the, as the banner over your life, the thing that drives you, <laughs> a desire to please him. Will that be the kind of thing that's stamped on your heart? Will you trust him uh, and his good design for sexual holiness um, that is good and life-giving? Will you trust him when it comes to loving his family, Um, loving the church the way he loves it and putting aside personal ambition and pride and uh, living in humility and self-sacrifice together? I think it's the same kind of thing going on here. But the question is not just will you trust God with your life here and now and the things that you're doing now. Will you trust God with your death too? Because you have an encouragement here that outshines any of your fear. Um, There's one thing here I think that's just really striking. One of the things that gets advised reading up about uh, for sufferers of FOMO, so sufferers of uh, people who are suffering this fear of missing out, one of the things that gets advised is 
uh, to help people to become content with the idea that they're, they're missing out. There's something really to, to kind of embrace missing out. Um, I think there's something really helpful there, actually. It's kind of pushing back against the relentless consumerism that you know, enslaves us. Um, but do you notice how Paul doesn't quite go there? He doesn't quite go there. And Jesus' people cannot, don't have to have a fear of missing out, but it's not primarily because we just accept that we will miss out. Um, we cannot fear missing out in the face of death because in Jesus we already have everything. See how Paul wraps it all up with his beautiful statement um, in verse 17 at the end there. The end point of all this. And so we will be with the Lord forever. See, this isn't just a vision of life like it is here and now. Incomplete, restless, and bound by death. It's a vision of a permanent, joy-filled life in the presence of the one who is the source of all joy and all life. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And here it is, rest, real rest offered to us through the gospel, an eternal hope, a hope that is anchored in the past reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, a hope that brings us into relationship with the God who is light and love, the God who made us, a relationship we experience in part now, but a relationship that we will know fully then, for all eternity, we will be with the Lord forever. And so who cares? Who cares, frankly, about missing out on a few things here and now when that future awaits us? The answer to... Uh, the ultimate answer to fearing missing out is to see the incredible, eternal, always there riches that we have through Jesus. Paul ends by urging us to encourage one another with these words. Um, I've had a, um, I've tried to do that this morning, but a little bit unprepared. We've had an interesting week with family sickness and things. Um, I've, I've, that's what we've tried to do here this morning. But, uh, but I want to finish by just encouraging us uh, to see that this is actually something that Paul urges you to do if you are a Christian person. This is the job of all of us. Take this vision of God's future into your heart. Let it burn within you and then speak it to each other. As you wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Lord, we've had a, just a glimpse into these realities that are too big for us to comprehend, um, are, are too wonderful and yet things that we know are real, things that we know are sure, things that we know are offered and secured for everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Lord, fill us with this vision of the coming future that transforms how we live in the present. May we be encouraged today by this reality and may we be those who encourage each other with these words. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.